0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Community Relations Corner, where we discuss issues of concern to New York's Jewish community and our friends and partners all over the city. I'm your host, Michael Miller, the Executive Vice President and CEO of the Jewish Community Relations Council of JCRCNY, and on each episode, of Community Relations Corner. We're joined by guests representing the political, religious, economic, and diverse community leadership in New York, many of whom I've had the honor and pleasure of getting to know over the course of my lengthy tenure here at JCRC. Together, we'll explore topics spanning their interests, backgrounds, and current events impacting the New York Jewish community and its neighbors, as well as the state of our city the state of our state and the state of our nation but first a word of thanks to our wonderful sponsor this episode is sponsored by the free synagogue of flushing serving the reformed jewish community in queens new york for over a century visit freesynagogueflushing.org for a 360 degree panorama of its magnificent stained glass sanctuary and immerse yourself in a piece of queens jewish history join Free Synagogue of Flushing for a wide array of programming and webinars and the beautiful sanctuary, social hall, and meditation garden are available for rent uh, to add to your joyous occasions. Visit freesynagogueflushing.org to learn more about their Shabbat services and weekly Sunday school. Once again, freesynagogueflushing.org. We thank them so much for their generous support of these programs. And now it's my pleasure to introduce today's guest on the Community Relations Corner. And he is the very interviewed himself, the national political reporter, national politics reporter for Jewish Insider. Um, And he has been referred to as the most most famous uh, Hasidic journalist in America, by the Forward, and some would say in the world. And his name is Jacob Kornblow. Welcome, Jacob.
1: Good to be with you, Rabbi.
0: (laughs) You're welcome. Great to be with you as well. And we were schmoozing before we went live that we have known each other for an exceedingly long time. We won't tell anybody exactly how long, so we don't want to give away our ages. Uh, but what's most important, uh, Jacob, is that wherever there's a story to be covered that impacts on politics, I, I always see you there. I don't even remember an event where you haven't been there. Um, and uh, it's really to to your great credit. But uh, let's really introduce you uh, to the audience. Um, I, but they need to know more about you, about your journey. Um, that I guess it's is just not very typical among uh, the Hasidic community to have a career uh, that's essentially in secular reporting and journalism, but secular journalism. So um, from your accent, uh, you were not born here in the United States, so let's get into that a little bit. How did you get into journalism and how did you ultimately become the, the person that you are, the most famous Hasidic reporter in America and probably the world,
1: Jacob? So first of all, uh, Michael, you are the most favorite rabbi uh, in the entire world. Thank you. And I would agree with you that I probably haven't missed any JCRC event in the last eight years. Uh, Zoom calls, I don't include in that because (laughs) it's too much. But um, any local event uh, that JCRC has is always dynamic and always I find it very eventful. Um, I would say uh, that uh, it goes back me growing up. I always was passionate uh, with what everything I did. Okay, if it was writing down my Talmudical studies, listening to uh, drushes and speeches in yeshiva and writing them down, doing my own chidushim, but also. Uh, being very, uh, you know, attuned to what's happening around in the political world. At the time I was growing up in London, I was very much interested in British politics, which, you know, is very interesting, sometimes boring, but nonetheless very interesting. Uh, You know, observed what was happening in Israel. Uh, When I was a teenager, uh, Yitzhak Rabin was murdered. so people became more involved in in understanding what was happening in Israel. When I went to Yeshiva in Israel, obviously, I was reading all the newspapers, listening to all the shows. Um, And when I got here to America, what I found was that it's not only me who's passionate about this, that there's people around me, members of my congregation or friends, who are also very much interested in politics, but at the time, there wasn't really a medium where you would sit down and discuss it other than uh, coming to shul Friday night and, and Shabbos morning at Kiddish, where people would congregate and gather around my table to hear my thoughts about the presidential election and about um, local and um, international politics. It was only in 2008 when uh, Facebook and Twitter was launched that I found myself in a situation where I was like, uh, why should I only keep my thoughts uh, the entire week and wait for Friday night uh, to share them with some of my friends? Why don't I just take a medium, a, uh, create a blog where I just put down not only my own thoughts, but whatever I find interesting that I would like other people to follow. And that led me to, uh, um, and again, at the time I was a restaurant owner. So really? that gave me the free that, that time. I didn't
0: know. I didn't
1: know that. Throwing pizzas into the (laughs) oven and creating salads. And and, 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 and I was a chef for a few years. But in my free time, I was following the news, writing down whatever I found was interesting, especially issues that uh, are important to our community. And in 2013, when the New York City mayoral race kicked off, uh, I was unemployed at the time. And I figured that... I would translate my passion, but also my motivation to uh, report and to tweet and so forth, to actually engage with the candidates who are running for office, to attend all these community and civic forums, uh, ask them questions that uh, regular reporters wouldn't ask them because right. it was complex issue at the time, it was Medsit education, vouchers, right. and of course, support for Israel. Uh, and, uh, at you know, a few years later, I was hired by Jewish Insider to take that to a national level. And here I am.
0: Yeah, but you
1: first started off doing it
0: on your own as just a, as a blogger. Right. Right. But everybody used
1: to read your blogs. <laughs> so, yeah, it's- actually, it's interesting because, you know, right now uh, uh, I'm a, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a reporter. Uh, I follow ethical and moral standards. But at the time, I was just a political junkie. Uh, uh, you know, I, I was more opinionated than I am right now. Uh, and um, I had this blog uh, focused just on Israeli politics. Um, it was called Bibi Report. Uh, <laughs> that I, was I just, never saw that one. <laughs> it was just created because. Prime Minister Netanyahu was eyeing a comeback ten, yeah. um, um, ten years after he lost his 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 re-election, and I was just fascinated by whatever was happening in Israel. So I tried to also write, and uh, you know, in English, uh, I didn't um, attend journalism school. I don't have a degree, and if you hear in my accent and the way I talk that I'm not necessarily the typical uh, reporter you would find coming out from school. But nonetheless, I was passionate about it. Uh, and this gave me just you know, more motivation to ask, to be informed, to read a lot, and ultimately to inform others and bring awareness to some issues that the Jewish community cares about. Well, that, that's a very good segue to my next question,
0: which is that since you're covering national politics here in the States, What have you learned about uh, how the Jewish community consumes news? What we're interested in? uh, What media actually uh, attracts uh, uh, the the Jewish community? And what are the major issues on the the national political
1: scene that, that impact on our community? So it's an interesting question because we are in a different situation right now in a different election than in 2016. I would say in 2016, the discussion was, Uh, more political, but on issues that the community actually cares about. It was after eight years of Obama, Hillary Clinton was a known figure within the community, she was a senator, she had her relationships, but there came uh, Donald Trump, who disrupted this whole process, and people became very engaged. And I'm talking specifically about the Orthodox Jewish community. Obviously, in the Jewish community, in general, uh, a majority of the Jewish community support or more aligned with the Democratic Party. But in this uh, neighborhood where I reside in, but mostly in New York City where there's a large uh, Orthodox Jewish population, people became more engaged on a local level, but also starting to debate issues that wasn't necessarily an issue going back for the past 15 years you know people were not talking about supreme court at the time or right. abortion laws or or you know uh, uh, politics in nature more about support for israel and you know education vouchers uh, supreme court only when it came to religious matters and so People became very much engaged, but it was also social media platforms that played a role where you could consume and uh, get your news from an echo chamber where you follow certain people. This is what you get. These are the opinions that actually form your mind and you stick with it. You gain a following or you follow a certain political figure that that is where you get your news from. And that is how you distribute it, debate it and actually want to uh, attempt to win an argument over others who think differently. I think in this election, it has changed dramatically just because of COVID, just because it impacts lives as well. So people are not looking at it just from a political lens where, if you're a Republican, you support President Trump. If you're a Democrat, you support Joe Biden. It has also become, you know, if you support President Trump, do you favor wearing masks? and uh, complying with social distancing rules? And if you are a Democrat, is it because you are influenced by the quote unquote fake news media and just want to uh, 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 believe Fauci and other experts just because they are uh, perceived as Democrats and as opponents to President Trump? So it's become very political. And I don't think there's an emphasis on real issues other than uh, the political spectrum where November 4th, no matter who gets elected, COVID is still here, we still have to deal with it. And there are many issues that both candidates have spoken about and that actually impacts the Orthodox Jewish community in particular, but also in general, the Jewish community and Americans alike. And I think that that is what is lacking right now is in the political discourse, focusing on issues that could actually impact our lives, but also the future of, of us and our future generations.
0: Yeah, you touched on a number of subjects that I want to get into, but uh, let's uh, deal with, with one, uh, that, that uh, identification with uh, the media of being fake news. Um, What does that mean to you, and what do you do differently to ensure that Jewish Insider, at least your reporting within Jewish Insider, is not viewed as being quote-unquote fake
1: news? Well, I focus mainly on the issues, but also um, being objective in a sense where I present you what is happening, the views of both sides in a very balanced view, but not inserting myself Um, as being uh, part of the story, or my opinion, to formulate that. And I think I've done a pretty good job in both giving, again, our readership is a very engaged readership. It's a readership that really uh, cares about certain issues, is passionate about certain issues. But, you know, everybody wants to sometimes read only what they think and what people think like them. And I try to provide whatever's happening on the scene, uh, featuring uh, candidates who are running for office, who are seeking to gain the trust of of the Jewish community, but also using that office for, 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 for enacting policies that would impact us all. And I think I can serve as a medium, bringing awareness to certain issues that mainstream media wouldn't necessarily focus on just because they're more broader issues that they cover, but also uh, giving people the 15 minutes every morning to get informed about whatever's happening, who is running, what their positions are, what policies are being uh, considered and implemented um, in Washington and across the board. And I think that it is important, not only for myself, but important for the, the role the media plays, but also for people who read about issues that they take that as being information and data that they can consume, but then form, formulate their own opinion mm-hmm. and whatever their opinion is, you should go with that, but not use certain information or partial information that you get to spread it further. Right, um, I understand. Uh, let's
0: now drill down into the Haredi uh, world. Um, the, the pandemic back in March, itch, and April really had a, a very devastating impact uh, on, on Borough Park in, in particular. Uh, there were numerous people who became ill. There were uh, all too many people, hundreds, uh, who, who, who died, who were killed by, by the virus. So what took place then? And it's going back a little bit in history, uh, but not that, not that far back, a few months. Uh, what What took place then in regard to Um, abiding by by lockdowns? And what was the community reaction to that that trauma that they they were experiencing around them?
1: So it's interesting because at the time, and people tend to forget, at the time it was uh, New Rochelle, but also Borough Park that was hard hit at the start of the outbreak. It took a week or two until government and uh, community came together to actually adapt to the new situation and implement harsh restrictions, but if you recall, it was mid-March when the White House did a conference call with um, some Hasidic rabbis and it was decided upon themselves, they decided to close down the schools and the schools uh, as a matter of pikuach nefesh, just because uh, it was a matter of saving lives. And so at the start, when everybody was confused, when everybody was frustrated, when people were just locking themselves up at home, not knowing what would bring next and who would be the next admitted to the hospital. I think there was this sense of urgency that we have to act without looking at the nuances, without looking at why and what and what other people are saying, but it didn't take much time until certain people elevated that voice, which was, that this is not about uh, this is not a health issue that we're dealing with. This is sort of uh, um, another attempt by government to control us. Even even back then in March and April. Yes. Again, those were were, were um, on the fringe. Okay, but th- the argument was brewing then. Really, the argument was brewing where those people who thought it was pikuach nefesh, those people who were really concerned about what was happening and really attempting to save lives, because that should be the objective of all of us the entire time, uh, they felt that we need to do some, take some drastic um, measures upon ourselves to do it, but government shouldn't be the one dictating it to us. And hmm. so while a majority of the community at the time the overwhelming majority, complied with the social distancing yeah. restrictions. It was a few weeks into the outbreak when things got calmer a little, when people yeah. were sort of waking up from that state of shock where you didn't hear anymore the 10, 20, 30 funeral announcements a day that the reopening process was very gradual and very slow meaning to say it wasn't just the mayor deciding what the priorities were, that was the phases that people felt that it went a little too slow in terms of prioritizing religious and ritual practices, which is very important for the community as a whole. And they felt that either the government is not sensitive to that, or that this is an attempt by government, uh, um, currently uh, uh, controlled, by members of the Democratic Party to undermine the president and to, you know, impose their own uh, control over certain uh, um, issues that the community cares about. And it it was in the months of of June and July, where the infection rate was really low, that people didn't pay much attention. People were arguing there's probably herd immunity or the virus has carried off and moved away from New York, but was also that... People were lax in, in, in complying with the restrictions just because they didn't see those horrific numbers, just because it wasn't any more a matter of life and death.
0: Really, so was, was it politically driven or was it communally driven? What, what was the, uh, what really changed within the, the Orthodox community from the beginning of the pandemic and, until now? And why the sudden turn to, to violence and, and rioting by, by some members uh, of the community, and and how representative were uh, those individuals who did engage in
1: that activity of the community as a whole? So you have to separate uh, uh, this in three groups, where you have people, again, specifically in the Orthodox community, who would comply with any measures, you know, would go on wearing masks just because they believe in the science just because they believe that their collective responsibility is to continue doing this in order to defeat the virus but then you have overwhelming majority of the community where they are law-abiding citizens they have a sense of responsibility when it comes to issues of life and death but also to religious practices and this is where the clash came upon again uh, The third group obviously is that fringe group that was led recently by a populist dangerous individual uh, who uh, were defying uh, the uh, measures, who are calling for non-compliance and just engaging in activity that we have never known uh, uh, within the community or especially in these neighborhoods. But the majority of people, uh, they look for guidance and when the infection rate was low and nobody was guiding them to what was really happening or what they should continue doing, people became lax. People understood that, hey, you know, first of all, you know, if you're politically opinionated, you will take one side. You will take either the side of Joe Biden, uh, you know, of being very careful in your social circles, being very careful about attending uh, um, religious gatherings or weddings, Or you would take the side of either I got sick already, so I have immunity, either there's herd immunity or that it's fine to get sick just because they look at the president who's saying, here, I I got sick. I was even admitted to the hospital and I defeated it within two days. But it's not because they do not want to comply. It's not because they feel that this is, Uh, opposite of what they believe in. It's just because it's a sensitive issue to impose certain restrictions on a community who is very much uh, traditionally very uh, 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 religious uh, uh, oriented. You know, gatherings in the community is our social life. Going three times a day to pray services is something that you can't take away from the community. And I think that both people within the community, okay, of guiding others to wear masks, keep social distancing uh, measures, and understand that this is a serious uh, health crisis that is not going away. But also government, government that did not educate people about what was happening, a government that did not allocate the right resources when they saw an uptick in cases, and a government that when there was an uptick, took drastic measures in a very short period of time that the community felt that they are being uh, targeted and singled out. So
0: what did the community, or maybe you have opinions yourself, what should government ha- have done? What should the mayor or, or the governor have done, or, or others, if you want to go beyond those two, um, that the community might have uh, paid attention to, and we wouldn't have ended up with... Uh, the, the The violence on on the streets and the, the raising of voices, um, again, what responsibility did they have, uh, and uh, what what didn't they do that they should have
1: done? So I think you're seeing it right now, activity that is being initiated by by local institutions, which could have been done in August when we saw the start of uh, uh, another you call it um, um, uptick in cases right. okay. Uh, uh, encouraging mass testing, okay, where you actually get an accurate sample of what the positivity rate is. If you sample only 155 cases, which was the first sample that Governor Cuomo announced that there's an uptick in cases, of 155 cases, you can't really get an accurate sample, especially in a neighborhood that has probably over 150,000 people.
0: And especially, especially over, over Yontif, especially over the right. holidays.
1: Right. And where people are not really encouraged to go get tested, but if you feel sick or, or you happen to go to the doctor or you happen to, to um, go uh, past the clinic and see no lines, you'll go in and test. So I think that was the number one problem where government did not allocate the right resources to get to a rapid and and mass testing uh, period where at least you would get an accurate sample. The second was the outreach. How do you encourage people to actually comply with the the measures, but also understand that this is serious. Uh, Putting an ad in a newspaper where a weekly publication that has probably 200 or 300 ads, that that wouldn't necessarily get noticed. A lot of uh, people within the community, especially the Hasidic community, they speak Yiddish as a mother language, Uh, reaching out to them in their own language by using influencers within the community, not only a conference call with a few selected rabbis, but actually influencers within the community just to bring awareness to the issue, not talking about policing or, 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 or any other measure. But just bringing awareness to the issue, educating the community about it, that you can go on with religious practices while wearing a mask and keeping social distance and avoid at least large gatherings. Uh, there could have been implemented a plan where I spoke to certain local lawmakers who who uh, initiated an outdoor services uh, plan, okay. which would encourage large congregations to hold the services on the street for the uh, Uh, holiday, high holidays, where the city would give you a permit um, street closures or a permit for a tent where you can actually hold outdoor services. All of these measures could have been done before that to actually deal with the infection Mm -hmm. rate. But I would also add it was after it already went a little out of control. I'm not saying it went out of control because we didn't see the numbers that we saw back in March. But I think when the governor and the mayor stepped up and alarmed the media um, and the city about it, they only gave a very small window for the community to actually adapt. And once they issued those restrictions, it was restrictions that wouldn't work. One, they wouldn't work just because they limited services during a holiday to 10 people where most of the synagogues have minimum 20 people, and I'm talking about the smaller synagogue right. in Borough Park. Right. Okay, that's number one. And number two, the issue of enforcement. If you're already implementing these restrictions, if you're already committing yourself to enforce the heck out of it, right. let's see your action. And if you cannot do it, you have to rethink your policies in order to make it an effective measure to defeat this virus and bring down, at least contain this virus by bringing down the infection rate.
0: So where, where are we now? Where are we now? Where, where is the community? Um, I, I noticed, of course, I think we all noticed that uh, Orange County uh, mm-hmm. went from, from uh, red to, to, to orange, uh, but uh, central southern Brooklyn um, is still red. Uh, so it means that covering covering Borough Park. So, what is the status of of the infection rate within the community, and are measures being taken by community leadership to try to bring the numbers
1: down? Yeah, as I mentioned um, in my my just my my previous answer, that there are large institutions and congregations that are actually um, encouraging people to get tested. Uh, I just got a a WhatsApp notice from one of the biggest uh, Hasidic communities in Borough Park uh, with time and location of why people should get tested in Yiddish and encouraging people that this is something that we have to take not only to bring down the numbers in order to get out the government off our backs but actually to get an accurate uh, rate in order to deal with it. I believe that if this activity continues and with the government now starting to release the real numbers because what they released back in the beginning of september was yeah. based on a sample of 200 300 cases really? They haven't provided the media or local elected officials with the real numbers of how many tests are being done of what the real positivity rate is and where we are right now i believe that if this continues if compliance continues without people being lax, without people under, um, a feeling that government is out to get us, that is out to target us. And when there are initiatives within the community to actually encourage people right. to comply, isolate those dark voices, isolated those people who engage in violence and work with government, I believe that we will get out of this crisis pretty soon.
0: Okay. Um, thank you for those answers. We're going to take a a little break and another thank you to our sponsor before we get back to the question that a lot of our viewers want to know about, which is what happened to you, beyond just being a a byline where you ended up in in the story. Uh, But first, uh, just a word of thanks to our sponsor for this episode, the Free Synagogue of Flushing, serving the Reformed Jewish community in Queens, New York, for over a century Visit freesynagogueflushing.org for a 360 degree panorama of its magnificent stained glass sanctuary and immerse yourself in a piece of Queen's Jewish history. Just uh, please join them for a wide array of programming and webinars and the beautiful sanctuary social hall and meditation garden are available for rent. To add to your special occasions, visit freesynagogueflushing.org to learn about their Shabbat services as well as their Sunday school. Once again, visit freesynagogueflushing.org. And back to our guest, and I guess in the news, I suppose, to writing about the news. So uh, many of our viewers uh, have probably seen the footage of, of your experience, um, I think it was about three weeks ago when you were attacked. Can you explain what happened and what brought the community to such a point um, how, how are you feeling now uh, about it a couple of weeks later? And depending on who wins the national election, what do you think your community is going to do in, in reaction? And will angry individuals be embroiled if either candidate wins? Uh, what kind of a world are we living in now, particularly
1: in Borough Park, Brooklyn? You asked a very sophisticated question. Um, I cannot answer you on what will happen after November 4, uh, because just because we don't know. Uh, What uh, you know, who's going to win, but also what the reaction is going to be, depending on the margin, depending how people react to the news, but also how um, the the national response will be uh, to this. You know, usually people jump onto a wagon that has already uh, started to move. So if there's riots in the street, then you know people go to those riots and start to engage if people are angry and claim that this election was rigged more people will jump onto their argument so I can't actually tell you what people will do but what I can tell you is that in terms of support for Trump in the Orthodox community there's overwhelming s- support probably passing his 2016 uh, a share of the vote but there's also uh, you know people who supported Trump in 2016, who are frustrated by all the chaos and what was happening over the past four years, and are uh, disappointed with the federal response to COVID. Uh, What I would say is that the reason we saw what happened two weeks ago was because there is this vacuum, because people are angry and frustrated Sometimes rightfully so, sometimes because government hasn't acted the right way, sometimes because they feel that the media has jumped upon stigmatizing and singling out the Jewish community when there are other communities who also engage in non-compliance, and also because there are some people there who are seeking to advance their political career, who are looking for attention, and the only way they get their attention is by being loud and by being... uh, uh, acting in a way where some see it as dangerous and some see it as coming to save the community. Mm-hmm. And so when you uh, claim to be a voice for the voiceless, when you come and uh, engage in, 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 in rhetoric, in, in, in rhetoric that we have never heard before, when you engage in activity that you claim to be the activity as a response to what government has done, people say, you know what, he's my hero. You know what, I will also follow um, that line because that's the only way we get out of the crisis. I think, at this time in particular, not only do we need to implement certain reforms as how to re- we react to certain political realities, how we react to certain uh uh, things that are happening within our community but also to isolate those figures so we don't see a replication of what has happened it's not about me i don't want to be part of the story i want to continue to do my job i love my job i'm very passionate about it and as you know i i I don't claim to want to be the most popular journalist and people know me long before uh this has happened to me and nobody wants to face this level of hate and intimidation, but I also believe that this is a response to a government that has proven to be ineffective, to a community that felt targeted, but also very frustrated about an issue that has turned political and that has also been viewed as if you comply, you are okay, you are safe. If you don't comply, you're unprotected, you're going to die. And when you look at the numbers, this is clearly not the case,
0: yeah, but uh, we, you studiously avoided uh, speaking about yourself, so i'm going to go back to it. Um, how did the events of uh, three weeks ago impact on you? Are mm-hmm. they still impacting on you? Are you doing anything differently you You did have uh, some uh, a police uh, not police you had you had security um, looking after you. Um, you have a family i mean uh, what what are your uh, concerns? today um, that may have been um, uh, alleviated over the past couple of weeks. But again, where is the mm-hmm. where is Jacob Kornblad today?
1: Well, I, yes. Of course, uh, I've learned my lesson. Um, it is very unfortunate that I couldn't, at the time, walk on the streets of my own neighborhood, do my job as a reporter, um, attempting not to be noticed, even. Um, And so what I felt at the time was that people are being fed uh, a campaign of lies and disinformation, that people think that what I did back in March and April, which was challenge the mayor on enforcement, when I was very much alarmed about the situation and as myself uh, uh, being brought up uh, with the value of saving each individual life, that I feel that once people uh, took that narrative where I'm being portrayed as a moister, as a snitch, whatever I'm going to do is gonna be viewed in that lens. And I think that people didn't appreciate at the time and probably do not appreciate right now that I am just doing my job as a member of the media about providing the data, bringing the accurate information, to the forefront for people to know, and also for government to know what's really happening, what the issues are and how it's impacting the community. And because of the act of a few individuals, this has totally been diluted and turned into a a personal campaign against me, which I don't want it to be continued, but I also won't be intimidated and I will do my job undeterred just because I feel that I'm doing the right thing Ethically, morally, but also because our collective responsibility has to always be about saving lives.
0: Right. Well, that that that's the right the way to think. Uh, but when you wake up in the morning and you leave your uh, apartment I, and go out into the street, oh, uh, so I you try
1: concerned? not to. I try not to walk on the street too frequently. I thank God my boss has given me a safe haven which is first of all, I'm protected. And also I have my job responsibilities that I do not need to wander on the street, (laughs) that I can do my job, engage with people, focus on the issues that matters, uh, do my job in an ethical and objective manner, but also try to be careful about those people who try to harm me and mostly try to ignore the noise because the the noise out there is very loud and the people who are engaging in dangerous behavior are still being elevated still being treated like a hero and as long as that continues as long as people are very politically charged and as long as people will see my work as something that is damaging to them i think they'll always face that level of you know animosity against me
0: Right, but again, just to to drill down a little bit further in regard to your ability, let's say to to go to synagogue, to go to shul uh, on
1: on on Shabbos, let's let's say. Um, yeah, I tried that- to avoid that uh, during um, right immediately after yeah. uh, the protest, um, and hopefully, I will be able to go back uh, wearing my mask, keeping social distance, and you know, again, I'm not trying to spotlight uh, the uh, issues. Right. within the community or to put a bad light on, on the community, which I think a majority of is actually engaging in compliance with the measures. But I also believe that, you know, I shouldn't be uh, attacked for doing my job, but also for being a citizen of this great country.
0: Right. Actually, I, I saw, and probably some of our viewers saw as well, the, the statement that was issued in Yiddish by the, the Satna Rebbe, uh, by mm-hmm. Reb Zalman Leib, um, condemning uh, protests and, and and violence, and I, I think and, and encouraging compliance um, and testing. I, I think that was a, a significant That's step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to get to a byproduct of, of all of this, and that is the image of the Orthodox community, uh, particularly the Haredi community in in uh, America at large and in, and in the world. Do uh, you feel that certain portrayals, and I've heard this for, from, from many, again, you're the reporter, but I'm asking you the question, do you, do you think that the, the, this portrayal uh, of uh, the Orthodox community during that period of, of the disruptions and the, and the demonstrations and, and the riots, et cetera, uh, contributes to anti-Semitism, um, hatred directed towards our community, and what can we do? What can we do in, in order to educate that, yes, the, the, those incidents did take, take place, but they were, as you refer to them, as a fringe within the community?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, we've seen a few reports recently about anti-Semitic attacks. I don't know if we can attribute that just to the fact that the Orthodox community has been in the headlines for the past couple of weeks but also probably be, just because we are visibly Jewish and just because we are so politically uh, uh, charged at this moment. But yeah, of course, uh, engaging in rhetoric where you are singling out one particular community in a neighborhood that is pretty much diverse. You have a large Hispanic community, Muslim, Italian community, Asian community in Borough Park itself. Mm-hmm. So when you focus on a certain neighborhood, or you just call red, um, red zones in neighborhoods with a large Jewish population, people feel that that could elevate voices who are uh, being who are taking action into their own matters. But if you look back in December, when there was a rash of anti-Semitic violent attacks against members of Orthodox community, there was nothing that drove them to do that, but just there's sometimes there's a lone wolf attack and sometimes people are motivated by what they're seeing on TV and what they're reading about. I do believe um, that, again, uh, not using the word uh, antisemitism lightly, uh, yes. applying it on our political leaders who have a long-standing relationship with the community and they have a proven record of speaking out against antisemitism and in support of Israel. If we put that aside and we focus on encouraging, and and obviously the mayor has apologized for his uh, approach and for singling out Jews. Uh, uh, The governor has also uh, uh, implied that he shouldn't have singled out the Jewish community as a whole as being non-compliant, but I also believe that it's their role uh, as bully pulpits, but also as policymakers, to make sure that they are sensitive to the issues that we grapple with, that when they enforce measures that they know that people would be able to actually implement and comply with and within the community to elevate voices who are actually uh, credible and are pragmatic and respectful mostly. Isolate those who are disrespectful. Isolate those who engage in violence and yes. make sure that people get the right picture. If people will get the right picture, if people will not only see those who are egging on reporters, if people would not only see the videos of um, uh, weddings taking place during the outbreak uh, or, or people uh, um, uh, burning masks, but also see how people are engaging in chesed, how people are actually trying to help the vulnerable to protect. Uh, those who get sick and also to comply as, as law-abiding citizens. I think that uh, collective effort yeah. on both sides will help mitigate this problem. And hopefully, you know, uh, after all, uh, we'll come out um, um, in a much better situation, a positive light, not only on the activity of members of the community who engage in, in, in creating this positivity, but also in giving an accurate picture of what this community is about. Right, I, I think you're, you're correct on that, and hopefully that'll be the case. I'm,
0: I'm concerned, I wonder if you're concerned. You uh, know there was a spike, a, a significant measured, um, a, a measuring of, of um, anti-Semitic incidents uh, mm-hmm. right before the pandemic hit. Um, and then the pandemic hit, and uh, the numbers plummeted in terms of hate crimes. Um, right. But I, I'm concerned that once we get uh, beyond um, the the pandemic, um, and and uh, particularly after just what what would happen, and the uh, the images that were portrayed of our community, that um, God forbid we, we could have a, a another round of of anti-Semitic incidents. Uh, does that concern
1: you as well? Absolutely, and I think that is why I believe that, number one, we have to tone down the rhetoric. Uh, Number two, um, undertake measures that would protect the community and ensure uh, those walking on the street, they they would never be attacked for what they are or for what they represent. And just because they are uh, Jews, they shouldn't be um, attacked for the activity of others. But also, I think that uh, we all hope uh, that some, something will be resolved next week and people will tone down the divisiveness, but also um, act when they see it, speak out against antisemitism, um, act when you pledge to act, implement certain federal hate crime laws or laws against hate speech. And we see members of uh, representatives in, in, in federal office on a local level as well, and uh, candidates who are running for office who are actually committing themselves to do that. So I think again, uh, you cannot uh, call a crime before it happened and you can always uh, protect the community if God forbid uh, that happens, but we should also have a collective responsibility to um, try and stamp down on it, try and prevent those attacks from actually happening. And then we at JCRC
0: in partnership with UJA established this community security initiative, uh, which is uh, even today during or during these past months, uh, during the pandemic, doing everything that we can to ensure the safety and security of our Jewish community and particularly our Jewish institutions in New York. Um, But you kind of touched on one one last question I wanna ask you in regard to the politics of what's gonna be happening uh, on november the, the 3rd um, both uh, I, I, before i i think again you try to skirt around uh the, the predicting the presidential election um, but even if you want to still do that of course i'm curious to know what your thoughts are but <laughs> but uh on on the house and, and on the senate you know, you're you're following national politics um just looking for 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 trends there've been uh, quite a number of polls out there People are wary of polls after the the polling failed in in 2016. Um, What internal poll are you using, uh, Jacob, to take a look at what we're gonna be viewing on Capitol Hill um, uh, come January 1st or January
1: 20th? Uh, I think so much is happening that you can't actually predict just because we have never been faced with a situation where there's a global pandemic where people, you know, the economy uh, was uh, trending positive and then took a downturn where uh, the leader of our country has been, you know, dismissing uh, science uh, and, you know, taking a different approach to politics as uh, uh, previous uh, presidents and candidates, but also just because we don't know if there is going to be a, um, a definite outcome on November 3rd. Uh, we might wait and have an election week or an election night month. Uh, You know, the ballots, (laughs) well, we hoped that we wouldn't have been right now in the midst of a pandemic, uh, six months going into the outbreak. Uh, So we shouldn't hope for anything, (laughs) uh, frankly. But I think that, you know, it's very hard to predict because based on polling data, based on trends, it looks like, that Joe Biden has a a significant, but also a a static um, lead against the president. But if you look at the battleground states, uh, it's pretty a tight race could go either way. What I said in 2016 was, if you see President Trump trailing by two or three, you should presume that he's leading by two or three. (laughs) And not because of the statistical ties, not because there's a margin of error, right. but there is sort of a silent vote. At mm. the time it was a re- Republican independent vote, a white class vote that was pr- uh, silent. Some of Obama voters who, who switched sides and voted for Trump. And I think now you have certain, uh, again, certain black voters who you know are encouraged by what they saw the implementation of the of the criminal justice reform and president trump's approach to certain policies but also just because people are number one try to trick the pollsters but also you cannot really get what their mood is on any given day to what they're actually going to vote for on election day how it's going to look like and i think that in a state in a battleground state that you see trump either one point ahead or trailing by two, I think you can presume based on the 2016 outcome that there's a likelihood that he might win those states. For instance, Florida, uh, Georgia and Pennsylvania, it's a tight race. Some polls give him 6%, uh, trailing 6% of Joe Biden, but some see it as a statistical tie but there's also not many options for him he has to win uh uh pennsylvania michigan arizona north carolina and georgia and florida in order to win so i think you can't really predict it but if you're asking me uh how i see it uh uh, playing out Mm -hmm. i think it's very early to predict again if you want to predict that biden is winning you are of a majority Mm -hmm. and if you want to predict president trump is winning you have taken a side because it's only those who support President Trump who are actually saying that he has a chance. So I still want to maintain my credibility, but I also want to prepare myself to both outcomes. So I am not going to give in to your very articulate question and answer you of who I predict will win this election. But I think in terms of the Senate and the House, obviously, the House is not going to flip. The Senate it seems like it could be a 50-50 situation or the Democrats could uh, regain control. And again, depending on who becomes president, if the Senate flips and Trump remains president, you could see a very different uh, political situation. If the opposite, if Biden wins the presidency and has total control of the House and the Senate, you will see him being pushed by the left by the progressives within his own party to act in the same way that President uh, Obama was slow to um, act in the first two years that he had total control of all executive and uh, legislative branches. Right. Wow. Thank you very, very much.
0: Jacob, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on our Community Relations Corner. I've always enjoyed, I think, this mutual. But I've always uh, I- enjoyed my interaction uh, with I'm you. I'm biased whether...
1: when it comes to you.
0: <laughs> Thank you, both uh, here in New York as well as as in Israel when we've uh, traveled together. Um, and I, I really would look forward, somewhere down the road, of of inviting you back on for another conversation, uh, just to kind of take the pulse of where we are politically. Uh, in, in this country and, and hopefully nothing revolving around you <laughs> as opposed to what your views are. <laughs> God willing, Bezrat Hashem. Um, okay, so again, thank you very much, uh, Jacob Kornblou, for uh, joining us on Community Relations Corner. I, I do want to thank once one more time our uh, wonderful uh, uh, sponsors for uh, the, the corner and our sponsor is uh, the Free Synagogue of Flushing. Uh, and this episode has been sponsored by the Free Synagogue of Flushing, serving the Reformed Jewish community in Queens, New York, for over a century. Visit freesynagogueflushing.org for a 360-degree panorama of its magnificent stained-glass sanctuary and immerse yourself in a piece of Queens Jewish history. Uh, join the synagogue for a wide array of programming and webinars and the beautiful sanctuary, social hall, and meditation garden are available for rent, for your joyous occasions, for your simchas. Uh, Please visit freesynagogflushing.org to learn more about their Shabbat and weekly Shabbat services and weekly Sunday school. Please visit freesynagogflushing.org. Our thanks to their president, Ed Schauder, who's a member of our board of directors and to Alan Bravo, who is their, their cantor and executive director, two wonderful friends. Thanks to our audience for joining us live. Thanks to our production team, who I keep on leaving out every week. Uh, Noam uh, Gilboard, uh, Rebecca Grossman, and Jennifer Glick. Um, I'm Michael Biller and have been with you with Jacob Cornblue over this uh, past uh, hour approximately. And we look forward to seeing you next time on the next episode of Community Relations Corner. Take care, everybody. Shalom and be well.